Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFURL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Olga Olicker, Program Director for Europe and Central Asia at the Crisis Group. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Olicker. It's a pleasure as always. All right. It's great to have you on the show again. Um, I usually ask the guest two questions, and this time both of them um, are going to be about the strange and short-lived mutiny by Yevgeny Prigozhin and his mercenary force, Wagner. It was one of the most astounding things to happen in Russia since the Soviet collapse, I'd say, um, and a lot has happened. Uh, and it's being widely described as one of potentially one of the most con consequential, um, certainly one of the biggest challenges uh, for um, Russian President Vladimir Putin in his more than 23 years uh, as president or prime minister. Um, after months of tirades against Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, this is some background, uh, against Shoigu and the Russian military leadership, uh, including the uh, chief of the general staff, uh, Gerasimov. Uh, Prigozhin sent his forces out of Ukraine, where they had played a key role in the extremely long and bloody battle for Bakhmut, uh, and sent them into Russia. They basically seized control of the large southern city of Rostov-on-Don, um, which is the hub for Russia's military operations in Ukraine, and a force of Wagner fighters headed toward Moscow. Um, and that was Friday night. Uh, it began Friday night after Prigozhin announced um, that his forces would conduct what he called a march of justice. Now, on Saturday morning, uh, Putin called the move a stab in the back by traitors, and vowed that its organizers would be brought to justice. But by Saturday night, it was over. Prigozhin announced that he was turning his forces back, and the Kremlin later said a deal had been reached under which Prigozhin uh, would not be prosecuted and would leave Russia for Belarus. Now, a couple of, uh, of footnotes here. Um, there are reports today um, that... In fact, uh, the criminal case against Prigozhin for organizing, you know, a suspicion of organizing, uh, I'm not sure of the wording, but organizing an armed insurrection or something along those lines is, has not been closed and, in fact, is still open. And we also do not know um, whether Prigozhin is in Belarus. I've seen reports of a sighting maybe in a Minsk hotel uh, but there's no confirmation of, of where Prigozhin is, whether in Belarus or elsewhere. Uh, so those those two things are, are unclear. Um, you know, those were sort of direct uh, things that were stated as being part of the agreement quite directly. So um, it still seems to be up in the air. Now, my first question, Dr. Olaker, is why do you think it ended so abruptly? Wagner forces uh, had faced little resistance, and according to Prigozhin, at least, they got within 200 kilometers of Moscow. So why did he quit when he was seemingly ahead? And I guess I'm going to sneak in another question here. Uh, is Prigozhin done? Will he now fade into oblivion uh, in Belarus or, or elsewhere if he doesn't go to Belarus? 
Okay, so thanks, uh, thanks, Steve, um, and thanks for the great, uh, great overview. First question is bizarrely enough, I think, easier to answer than the second. Um, my hypothesis, uh, based on the things Prigozhin said, uh, is that this was never meant to be a revolution, right? It was initiated as an effort to save Wagner, which was about to be subsumed by the defense ministry. So Prigozhin's comments on Friday targeted Defense Minister Shoigu and General Staff Chief Gerasimov and unnamed oligarchs uh, who, according to him, cooked up this unprovoked war in their own interests. And poor Putin had just been misled by these people and thus forced into bad decisions. Um, it's only after Putin denounced uh, Wagner's traitors that Prigozhin said, well, then fine, we're going to be getting a new president, aren't we? And then, you know, you've got this march north and eventually to very close to Moscow. And you've got, you know, Russians destroying the roads to try to keep them from getting to Moscow. So I think um, from Prigozhin's point of view, he never had the desire, the plan to take over the Russian government. Nor, I think, did he have, um, and here I'm speculating, allies who had such a plan. Um, said he's a risk-tolerant sort of guy. Uh, so I'm not sure that I fully think that the reason he turned around is that he realized, wow, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'll turn around. Um, I don't know that he's the sort of person who thinks that way. Um, I therefore suspect the stories we've heard that he was facing threats as well as promises uh, are probably true. Um and, you know, it was this combination of things. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. They're threatening me. They're promising me things. Maybe call it. Um, but, you know, this has all been so weird that, uh, you know, take everything anybody, including, including myself, says with lots and lots of salt. As to what happens next, well, yeah, we've heard the reports that he has made it to Belarus. Um, we've also, I've seen very recently in the last few minutes, literally, reports of facilities being built for Wagner in Belarus, which would suggest that contrary to everything I expected, he's going to move a chunk of Wagner to Belarus. Um, so if Wagner is going to be able to continue from a new base with Prigozhin leading it, then well, right, uh, have an insurrection, get a new base in a neighboring country. Um, that's an interesting message to send. All right, thanks very much. Yes, I mean, as you said, um, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. You know, your, your, um, your assessments seem, seem very accurate. Um, but but, but I, I will say, you know, of all the things in Russia, of all the murk, and kind of murky, you know, things that have happened. You know, this is one where, you know, we're being told things. Some kids are not told much, and it's just hard to it's hard to say what uh, what is true. Um, you know, including the level of the role of Lukashenko, you know, and and, and things like that. Um, I also, in fact, I was about to send you that uh, report about the the uh, Wagner base that's supposedly being set up in Belarus. Definitely a, an interesting. Uh, development, if that's true. Um, I guess I'd have a follow-up question on that. I'm sorry, uh, before moving on to the main second question. But um, I have this weird suspicion that he, he's there could be a role for him in sort of uh, being an agent or a, a, an element of Russian influence on Belarus, kind of like the nuclear 
the tactical nuclear weapons that they are supposedly putting there. Uh, do you think that's that's that you know out of the question, or is that one of the possibilities of of what he might kind of do there or, or be asked to do there? I mean, I think literally nothing is out of the question. Um, I also think I wonder if there aren't different views on what to do in Moscow, and they aren't all being pursued simultaneously. Right. So you've got the charges that are still in place, yet you've got these facilities being built. Um, I've heard that they're uh, making lists in Moscow of everybody who worked with uh, with Prigozhin. Um, so. I don't know. I mean, maybe there are a few options being left open and some uh, policy decisions that are not yet made about what to do with regard to Wagner, but uh, we're going to see, I guess. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's a great point that uh, there may be, there may be differing views in Moscow about what to do. Um, I mean, obviously from the, from what happened on Saturday, you know, starting with Putin's, um, you know, pretty fiery address saying there was, it was a stab in the back, they would be prosecuted, brought to justice, traitors, you know, to, I, I don't remember. Maybe a little more than twelve hours later, the the, the deal, um, which under which they're supposedly supposedly going to be uh, freed from prosecution. I mean that that shows that uh, Putin may have different ideas about what to do or, or what he should be doing. So um, yeah, certainly among uh, the various factions and, and individuals uh, in in Moscow, um, there may be set, maybe various various views and various sort of efforts to to use this. Um, all right, uh, so I, I'd like to um, move on to uh, to kind of the second question. Although I guess I've already asked three or four. Um, uh, I, I asked whether Prigozhin is done. Uh, what about Putin? Uh, it's safe to say that I think the main conclusion that many analysts and journalists have drawn from uh, these dramatic developments is that Putin is weakened uh, with a substantial number uh, essentially saying that this is the beginning of the end for him. Do you agree with those assessments, Dr. Olker? Is Putin damaged? Uh, and if so, how badly? And again, I'd like to add sort of another question on here. Uh, which is a little different, uh, how seriously might this affect the course of the war in Ukraine? So is Putin damaged? Um, I think the Kremlin is doing its best to say, nope, everything's fine, business as usual, but going back to business as usual after a day like Saturday is damage. Um, look, Putin has just told everyone that a threat from the right, which the Kremlin did not anticipate, did not prepare for, is so scary that they're going to capitulate to it. On the other hand, if they go after Prigozhin and Wagner despite the promises, then what they're saying is that the Kremlin's word is pretty much worthless. Um, so... I would say how damaged Putin is actually depends on how people in the Kremlin and in Russia as a whole and in the Russian armed forces respond to all of this. Do they respond to all of this by falling into line behind Putin? We need stability. Whatever he does is fine. Do they 
conclude that standing up to Putin is the right thing. We're sick of him. I mean, just everybody waited this out on Saturday, right? Very few clear statements of support for the government from within and outside of Russia. Um, so, you know, and if they think that Putin is damaged, what do they want to do about it? And if Prigozhin is still around, do they want to use him for it? Um, and in terms of the war in Ukraine, finally, which it's related, right? Um, it's not that immediately the Russian armed forces are going to fall apart, Evident, quite evidently not. Uh, but what does this mean for command and control and for morale? What kind of country are you fighting for anyway, if this is the sort of thing that happens? Uh, does Russia decide that it is more nervous about incursions into Russia, like the ones uh, that we were seeing in Belgorod earlier? And if so, do they move? Um, do they move any forces around, thereby weakening the line in Ukraine? Um, so lot, lots to watch for. Uh, but I think um, I also think it's possible that they will try to do something nasty in Ukraine to draw away attention and also. And, you know, in the spirit of the toxic masculinity that seems to drive all of this in the spirit of demonstrating that they're still very, very, very mean men. Um, now, I'm not sure how we'd know the difference, given what they do anyway on a daily basis in Ukraine, but that's another possibility. So I think, um, yeah, all very inconclusive. Uh, I feel like as a, as a as a longtime Russia watcher, all I can usefully do is point to the things I'm watching. Um, and speculates, uh, try to exclude what I think is completely insane. But you know what, two hours ago, I would have, I would have, and I think I did exclude the possibility of Wagner reforming in Belarus. And we might just be seeing that. So I don't know. Yeah. yeah good point about, uh, you know, Russia may, um, or Putin may feel the need to do something nasty, uh, in Ukraine, and, and as you said, um, how do you tell the difference between the daily uh, nastiness uh, and something new? But um, I mean, it's kind of ironic because this mutiny drew attention away from the war in Ukraine, I would say, um, you know, for a day. Um, and now because of it, it's a legitimate uh, to to suspect that that you know, Russia may do something to kind of bring bring the attention back to that. Um, and I was wondering also, uh, you, you mentioned you as you as an analyst of Russia, you can only say what you're watching for what you're what you're watching. So I guess and you mentioned some of those things, but uh, I guess if I could ask you to follow up by by. Uh, talking about a couple more things you're watching in terms of of the the outcome or the ramifications of this of this mutiny. So absolutely, what happens in Belarus? What happens to Prigozhin? What happens to Wagner? What happens to Wagner in Africa and the Middle East? We're also hearing that Wagner recruiting in Russia is um, cheerfully back up and running. So you know what's going on with that? Um, I'm interested in seeing what narratives we hear in Russia about the events, about Saturday's events. Um, I am curious as to the extent to which things like the downing of Russian aircraft by Wagner 
get picked up and discussed or continue to be buried in the Russian narratives uh, as they have been. The other thing that's been interestingly buried in the Russian narratives is Prigozhin's comments that this this whole full-scale war was on false pretenses. Um, you know, why, why, is, uh, why are all these people who are so fond of Prigozhin not actually talking about that? Um, and I think... Um, what happens to this mutiny case against Prigozhin? Um, does it go forward? If it doesn't, uh, what happens instead? Uh, but you know what? I like my one my one prediction is expect more surprises. This is what we've been getting, and I think this is what happens when you have a very centralized, personalized system of rule, which um, does not allow for a lot of clear and free debate, and where information is uh, very tightly controlled and inaccurate information is probably a lot of what is um, is moving around. So what you get is bizarre seeming decisions and lots of surprises. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and those are great things to watch. I just uh, just wanted to kind of second the 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 idea that um, uh, Prigozhin's comment about about NATO, about the kind of excuses or pretext for the war, were were quite you know quite a different thing from what he'd been saying from from you know the, his criticism of of the military and and all the things he'd said before. Um, you know, essentially saying this one of the major kind of linchpins of the of the Russia, of Putin's narrative um, is it, false. You know, NATO and Ukraine are not about to attack Russia. So this is, and and now, of course, in the last few months, the 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 narrative from the Kremlin and Putin, you know, that that kind of the emphasis on that narrative has increased. That this is a war, you know, against it's a defensive war. Uh, against against the West, against NATO, um, so so he kind of really undermined that. I mean, to what degree Russians are, are listening, or and you know if they if they like him or if they would be inclined to follow him, to what degree that that kind of thing really matters to them. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's other things uh, about him that are more interesting to them. But but certainly. Um, Sort of laying that that seed, uh, you know, underneath the one of the main pretexts for the for the invasion for the large scale invasion is quite interesting. Okay, um, I uh, will. Thanks very much for those responses. I would like to um, take a few questions uh, if there are any. I do see one question that's come in. Uh, from David Magradze. Um, I think the answer to this question is we don't know yet, um, but the question is, is it known how many Wagner fighters followed Prigozhin to Belarus? Now, uh, for me, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I'm not sure it was, you know, there's no confirmation that, that, that Prigozhin himself is there at this point, unless it's come in quite recently, I, I think. Um, and, you know, who was traveling with him if he went, you know, I don't know, but, but as, as Dr. Olker mentioned, there, um, are reports, I think Vjorst, uh, the, uh, was one of the, at least one of the, 
media outlets reporting um, uh, the creation of a base or a base camp for uh, Wagner forces in, in Belarus. Yeah, I mean, I also, I don't have uh, anything that looks remotely like numbers or confirmation. It's all, it's all rumors and guesses, and uh, it's very bad data. Okay, um, just uh, see if we have any more questions. Give it a few moments. Looks like there's comments, but I am not good at this. When I try to click on them, I go to somewhere completely different. Hi, uh, Martin, you can ask your question. Thank you very much. Um, Steve um, and Olya, um, good morning from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Martin Zielik speaking. Um, I noticed a, a headline. I didn't have the chance yet to read the article in the uh, Times of London. Um, and I'm wondering if you could comment on this, um, that uh, Britain, um, and I'm not sure who the particular person was, I think it might have been um, the British Minister of Defence, but uh, regardless, uh, the headline was that uh, Britain should, uh, Great Britain should prepare for the uh, collapse of, uh, of Russia. Um, and uh, also, um, of course, it reflects on the, uh, the, uh, the type of uh, government uh, dictatorship in China, too. If you could maybe reference that, how uh, the Chinese leadership um, has, um, again, so... Um, so strongly come down on the side of uh, the dictator um, in Russia, Putin, in this uh, latest um, episode um, with um, the uh, gangster Prigozhin. So I, I will drop down and uh, let me just say I, I really, really enjoy listening to um, to these uh, podcasts or to, to these uh, Twitter uh, broadcasts, uh, Steve. Um, it's really informative and uh, thank you, and I'll drop down and hear what you have to say. So sorry, the first... Oh, thanks very much for that. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I just wanted to say thanks for the, uh, for the, the comment, um, and it's, it's all due to the guests, so um, I'll open the floor. But, but interesting to, you know, uh, to question, including about... And what are other countries now thinking? Is this is this going to change their their kind of calculus about Russia and the war in Ukraine? So look, um, I suppose the likelihood, the assessed likelihood of Russian collapse is slightly higher uh, today than it was a week ago, but I still don't think it's very high. Um, but surprises galore, right? Um, this was a very very weird weekend. Uh, as for China and its policy choices, well, I'm sure they're thinking through them right now. Um, look, from a reasonable geostrategic standpoint, it makes perfect sense for China to align with Russia. They have very similar interests and relatively similar worldviews. Uh, I think that the newly presented challenge is, is whether or not Russia is in danger from the inside and indeed from some of the very forces that 
the government has uh, kind of thought were um, were tame, uh, tame thugs, um, as it were. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I am not a sinologist and I have no insights into what they're thinking in Beijing. But uh, if I were them, I would be doing some thinking. All right. Thanks very much um, for the question and the response. Um, just uh, any more questions? I think we could take a couple more, if if there are. Uh, while we wait, I guess uh, see if there are any more. I'll ask. Another follow-up um, for Dr. Olicker, I guess, uh, speaking of, of, of foreign countries, and the, is there a chance that um, this could, I guess, in a, in a positive way, affect um, kind of the, the level or the, or the um, uh, stability of support, Western support for Ukraine in the war, kind of with the, with the thought that, well, now Russia's kind of staying power is, seems less less certain or, or, or you know a little shakier, so let's let's stick with Ukraine. Um, so I'm just wondering if, if you think it could affect the, that kind of thinking. So I think we're going to get, as always, uh, some debates uh, about what Western policy should be. You can walk away from this thinking that if you push really hard on Russia, Russia folds, right? Um, you can and then you can also try to make the case that what you do about an internal threat from one of your own, as it were, is different from what you do from an external threat from your adversaries. Um, though, I don't know. I mean, Putin did uh, stand there in his recorded comments on Saturday saying these people were traitors. So, you know, you interpret that uh, how you will. Um, I mean, I would say I, I'm slightly more sympathetic to the notion that uh, Russia, when pressed, will fold. I mean, I guess the danger is that Russia, when pressed, might escalate, and that danger is still a pretty catastrophic one. So you want to continue to find a balance of some sort. Um, you know, I, I saw somewhere a headline that this demonstrates that uh, NATO should absolutely offer Ukraine membership right away. And I was kind of like, it, it does? Uh, walk me through that. I'm not sure I follow it. But I think we're going to be hearing more of these debates, um, particularly in the lead up to the NATO Vilnius Summit, uh, with different people making very different arguments, right? The other argument is, oh, my God, Russia is so fragile. We, and if something happens to Russia, what will happen to the nuclear weapons? Therefore, we must keep Putin in power and do everything we can to to make that happen, which is also an argument I find somewhat bizarre. Um, it's, yeah, so I think what we're going to be hearing is lots of people trying to use the events um, of uh these last few days and anything that follows as evidence for whatever their preferred policy has been uh, for the last 14 months or perhaps the last 10 years, if not longer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, as you say, different, uh, there are going to be lots of different arguments. There are lots of different interpretations of what may happen next. Uh, so, and lots of arguments uh, 
different opinions about how to how to handle this or how to approach this uh, in the West. Okay, uh, I do see one more question now uh, from Angela Sarni. Um, question is, if at all, how might the influx of information from dozens of Russian military bloggers uh, on Telegram, how might it have affected the events in Russia and Western perceptions of what is going on? Well, I mean, the bloggers, um, you know, this is a lot of what gives Prigozhin some support, right? The kind of that far right blogging scene is a lot of his base. A lot of the people who echo his comments about, um, you know, that have historically been more war in Ukraine rather than Fridays, the war in Ukraine uh, is a sham. Um, so, I, th you know, I th there's that. Um, We've seen uh, folks who follow uh, that those narratives more closely uh, see some frustration with uh, Prigozhin having turned around, uh, but I think there's also a variety of view views there too. Um, I'm not following it really closely, so you know it's um, I'm the wrong person to ask for. Uh, information about it, but it's certainly another useful place to keep your eyes. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, and I just see uh, another question uh, coming in from Seppi, and this is, uh, I guess, along the lines of, the, of part of the question about China. Uh, question is, have you have uh, ha you know how this may be impacting um, what the questioner calls the terrorist regime in Iran and its international position, and how it affects this ongoing uh, revolution in Iran, considering their relationship to the Ukraine war. So I guess how you know how this could affect uh, things in Iran and Iran's approach to to Russia and Ukraine. I am. Um the absolutely wrong person to answer that question. So I will not even try. All right, fair enough. And I um, probably would be even more absolutely wrong person. So I won't either. Um, so apologies for that, but uh, um, thanks for the question. And um, I think we'd have time for one more if, if there are any. Uh, so just give it a few moments. Okay, I'm not seeing any more questions. Um, so I uh, think we can wrap it up. All right, uh, Dr. Olker, thank you so much uh, for your time uh, and your insights. Thank you as always for having me on. Okay, uh, you're welcome and I hope to do it again soon. Once again, I've been speaking to Dr. Olga Olker, Program Director for Europe and Central Asia at the Crisis Group. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google, 
Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, on Friday. Thanks for your questions, and thanks for listening.